0: Blackstone Audio presents an autobiography the story of my experiments with truth by mohandas k gandhi introduction four or five years ago
1: at the instance of some of my nearest co-workers i agreed to write my autobiography i made the start but scarcely had i turned over the first sheet when riots broke out in bombay and the work remained at a standstill. Then followed a series of events which culminated in my imprisonment at Yeravda. Sergeant Duram Das, who was one of my fellow prisoners there, asked me to put everything else on one side and finish writing the autobiography. I replied that I had already framed a program of study for myself, and that I could not think of doing anything else until this course was complete. I should indeed have finished the autobiography, had I gone through my full term of imprisonment at Yaravda, for there was still a year left to complete the task, when I was discharged. Swami Anand has now repeated the proposal, and as I have finished the history of Satyagraha in South Africa, I am tempted to undertake the autobiography for Navajivan. The Swami wanted me to write it separately for publication as a book but I have no spare time. I could only write a chapter week by week. Something has to be written for Navajivan every week. Why should it not be the autobiography? The Swami agreed to the proposal, and here am I, hard at work. But a God-fearing friend had his doubts, which he shared with me on my day of silence, what has set you on this adventure? he asked. Writing an autobiography is a practice peculiar to the West. I know of nobody in the East having written one, except amongst those who have come under Western influence. And what will you write? Supposing you reject tomorrow the things you hold as principles today, or supposing you revise in the future your plans of today, is it not likely that the men who shape their conduct on the authority of your word, spoken or written, may be misled? Don't you think it would be better not to write anything like an autobiography? At any rate, just yet? This argument had some effect on me. But it is not my purpose to attempt a real autobiography. I simply want to tell the story of my numerous experiments with truth. And as my life consists of nothing but those experiments, it is true that the story will take the shape of an autobiography. But I shall not mind if every page of it speaks only of my experiments. I believe, or at any rate flatter myself with the belief, that a connected account of all these experiments will not be without benefit to the reader. My experiments in the political field are now known not only to India but to a certain extent to the civilized world. For me they have not much value, and the title of mahatma that they have won for me has therefore even less. Often the title has deeply pained me, and there is not a moment I can recall when it may be said to have tickled me. But I should certainly like to narrate my experiments in the spiritual field which are known only to myself, and from which I have derived such power as I possess for working in the political field. If the experiments are really spiritual, then there can be no room for self-praise. They can only add to my humility. The more I reflect and look back on the past, the more vividly do I feel my limitations. What I want to achieve, what I have been striving and pining to achieve these thirty years, is self-realization, to see God face to face, to attain moksha. Literally, freedom from birth and death, the nearest English equivalent is salvation. I live and move and have my being in pursuit of this goal, All that I do by way of speaking and writing, and all my ventures in the political field, are directed to this same end. But as I have all along believed that what is possible for one is possible for all, my experiments have not been conducted in the closet but in the open, and I do not think that this fact detracts from their spiritual value. There are some things which are known only to oneself and one's maker. These are clearly incommunicable. The experiments I am about to relate are not such, but they are spiritual, or rather moral, for the essence of religion is morality. Only those matters of religion that can be comprehended as much by children as by older people will be included in this story. If I can narrate them in a dispassionate and humble spirit, many other experimenters will find in them provision for their onward march. Far be it from me to claim any degree of perfection for these experiments. I claim for them nothing more than does a scientist who, though he conducts his experiments with the utmost accuracy, forethought, and minuteness, never claims any finality about his conclusions, but keeps an open mind regarding them. I have gone through deep self-introspection, searched myself through and through, and examined and analyzed every psychological situation, yet I am far from claiming any finality or infallibility about my conclusions. One claim I do indeed make, and it is this. For me, they appear to be absolutely correct, and seem for the time being to be final. For if they were not, I should base no action on them, but at every step I have carried out the process of acceptance or rejection and acted accordingly. And so long as my acts satisfy my reason and my heart, I must firmly adhere to my original conclusions. If I had only to discuss academic principles, I should clearly not attempt an autobiography. But my purpose, being to give an account of various practical applications of these principles, I have given the chapters I propose to write the title of The Story of My Experiments with Truth. These will, of course, include experiments with nonviolence, celibacy, and other principles of conduct believed to be distinct from truth. But for me, truth is the sovereign principle, which includes numerous other principles. This truth is not only truthfulness in word, but truthfulness in thought also, and not only the relative truth of our conception, but the absolute truth, the eternal principle, that is God. There are innumerable definitions of God because His manifestations are innumerable, They overwhelm me with wonder and awe, and for a moment stun me. But I worship God as truth only. I have not yet found Him, but I am seeking after Him. I am prepared to sacrifice the things dearest to me in pursuit of this quest, even if the sacrifice demanded be my very life. I hope I may be prepared to give it. But as long as I have not realized this absolute truth, so long must I hold by the relative truth as I have conceived it. That relative truth must, meanwhile, be my beacon, my shield and buckler. Though this path is straight and narrow and sharp as the razor's edge, for me it has been the quickest and easiest. Even my Himalayan blunders have seemed trifling to me because I have kept strictly to this path. For the path has saved me from coming to grief, and I have gone forward according to my light. Often in my progress I have had faint glimpses of the absolute truth, God, and daily the conviction is growing upon me that He alone is real and all else is unreal. Let those who wish realize how the conviction has grown upon me, let them share my experiments and share also my conviction, if they can. The further conviction has been growing upon me that whatever is possible for me is possible even for a child, and I have sound reasons for saying so. The instruments for the quest of truth are as simple as they are difficult. They may appear quite impossible to an arrogant person and quite possible to an innocent child. The seeker after truth, should be humbler than the dust. The world crushes the dust under its feet, but the seeker after truth should so humble himself that even the dust could crush him. Only then, and not till then, will he have a glimpse of truth. The dialogue between Vasishta and Vishvamitra makes this abundantly clear. Christianity and Islam also amply bear it out. If anything that I write in these pages should strike the reader as being touched with pride, then he must take it that there is something wrong with my quest, and that my glimpses are no more than mirage. Let hundreds like me perish, but let truth prevail. Let us not reduce the standard of truth even by a hair's breadth, For judging erring mortals like myself, I hope and pray that no one will regard the advice interspersed in the following chapters as authoritative. The experiments narrated should be regarded as illustrations, in the light of which every one may carry on his own experiments according to his own inclinations and capacity. I trust that to this limited extent the illustrations will be really helpful because I am not going either to conceal or understate any ugly things that must be told. I hope to acquaint the reader fully with all my faults and errors. My purpose is to describe experiments in the science of satyagraha, not to say how good I am. In judging myself, I shall try to be as harsh as truth, as I want others also to be. MEASURING MYSELF BY THAT STANDARD, I MUST EXCLAIM WITH SURDAS, WHERE IS THERE A WRETCH SO WICKED AND loathsome AS I? I HAVE FORSAKEN MY MAKER, SO FAITHLESS HAVE I BEEN. FOR IT IS AN UNBROKEN TORTURE TO ME THAT I AM STILL SO FAR FROM HIM, WHO, AS I FULLY KNOW, GOVERNS EVERY BREATH OF MY LIFE, AND WHOSE OFFSPRING I AM. I know that it is the evil passions within that keep me so far from him, and yet I cannot get away from them. But I must close. I can only take up the actual story in the next chapter.
0: The Ashram, Sabarmati, 26th November 1925, M. K. Gandhi The Story of My Experiments with Truth Part 1 1. Birth and Parentage The Gandhis
1: belong to the Bunya caste and seem to have been originally grocers. But for three generations from my grandfather they have been prime ministers in several Katiawad states. Uttamchand Gandhi, alias Ota Gandhi, my grandfather, must have been a man of principle. State intrigues compelled him to leave Porbunder, where he was Diwan, and to seek refuge in Junagadh. There he saluted the Nawab with the left hand. Someone, noticing the apparent discourtesy, asked for an explanation, which was given thus. The right hand is already pledged to Porbunder. Ota Gandhi married a second time, having lost his first wife. He had four sons by his first wife, and two by his second wife. I do not think that in my childhood I ever felt or knew that these sons of Ota Gandhi were not all of the same mother. The fifth of these six brothers was Kuramchand Gandhi, alias Kaba Gandhi, and the sixth was Tulsidas Gandhi. Both these brothers were prime ministers in Porbandar, one after the other. Kaba Gandhi was my father. He was a member of the Rajasthanic court. It is now extinct, but in those days it was a very influential body for settling disputes between the chiefs and their fellow clansmen. He was for some time prime minister in Rajkot, and then in Vangtaner. He was a pensioner of the Rajkot state when he died. Kaba Gandhi married four times in succession, having lost his wife each time by death. He had two daughters by his first and second marriages. His last wife, Bai, bore him a daughter and three sons, I being the youngest. My father was a lover of his clan, truthful, brave, and generous, but short-tempered. To a certain extent he might have been given to carnal pleasures, for he married for the fourth time when he was over forty. But he was incorruptible, and had earned a name for strict impartiality in his family as well as outside. His loyalty to the state was well known. An assistant political agent spoke insultingly of the Rajkot Takor Sahib, his chief, and he stood up to the insult. The agent was angry, and asked Kaba Gandhi to apologize. This he refused to do and was therefore kept under detention for a few hours. But when the agent saw that Kaba Gandhi was adamant, he ordered him to be released. My father never had any ambition to accumulate riches and left us very little property. He had no education, save that of experience. At best, he might be said to have read up to the fifth Gujarati standard. Of history and geography, he was innocent. But his rich experience of practical affairs stood him in good stead in the solution of the most intricate questions, and in managing hundreds of men. Of religious training he had very little, but he had that kind of religious culture which frequent visits to temples and listening to religious discourses make available to many Hindus. In his last days he began reading the Gita at the instance of a learned Brahman friend of the family, and he used to repeat aloud some verses every day at the time of worship. The outstanding impression my mother has left on my memory is that of saintliness. She was deeply religious. She would not think of taking her meals without her daily prayers. Going to Havali, the Vaishnava temple, was one of her daily duties. As far as my memory can go back, I do not remember her having ever missed the Chaturmas. Literally, a period of four months. A vow of fasting and semi-fasting during the four months of the rains. The period is a sort of long lent. She would take the hardest vows and keep them without flinching. Illness was no excuse for relaxing them. I can recall her once falling ill when she was observing the Chandrayana vow, a sort of fast in which the daily quantity of food is increased or diminished according as the moon waxes or wanes. But the illness was not allowed to interrupt the observance. To keep two or three consecutive fasts was nothing to her. Living on one meal a day during Chaturmas was a habit with her. Not content with that, she fasted every alternate day during one Chaturmas. During another Chaturmas, she vowed not to have food without seeing the sun. We children on those days would stand staring at the sky, waiting to announce the appearance of the sun to our mother. Everyone knows that at the height of the rainy season, the sun often does not condescend to show his face and I remember days when, at his sudden appearance, we would rush and announce it to her. She would run out to see with her own eyes, but by that time the fugitive son would be gone, thus depriving her of her meal. That does not matter, she would say cheerfully. God did not want me to eat today. And then she would return to her round of duties. My mother had strong common sense. She was well informed about all matters of state, and ladies of the court thought highly of her intelligence. Often I would accompany her, exercising the privilege of childhood, and I still remember many lively discussions she had with the widowed mother of the Takwar Sahib. Of these parents I was born at Porbunder, otherwise known as Sudamapuri, on the 2nd October, 1869. I passed my childhood in Porbunder. I recollect having been put to school. It was with some difficulty that I got through the multiplication tables. The fact that I recollect nothing more of those days than having learnt, in company with other boys, to call our teacher all kinds of names, would strongly
0: suggest that my intellect must have been sluggish and my memory raw. Two. Childhood. I must have been about seven when my father
1: left Porbunder for Rajkot to become a member of the Rajasthanic court. There I was put into a primary school, and I can well recollect those days, including the names and other particulars of the teachers who taught me. As at Porbunder, so here there is hardly anything to note about my studies. I could only have been a mediocre student. From this school I went to the suburban school, and thence to the high school, having already reached my twelfth year. I do not remember having ever told a lie during this short period, either to my teachers or to my schoolmates. I used to be very shy and avoided all company. My books and my lessons were my sole companions. To be at school at the stroke of the hour, and to run back home as soon as the school closed, that was my daily habit. I literally ran back because I could not bear to talk to anybody. I was even afraid lest anyone should poke fun at me. There is an incident which occurred at the examination during my first year at the high school, which is worth recording. Mr. Giles, the educational inspector, had come on a visit of inspection. He had set us five words to write as a spelling exercise. One of the words was kettle. I had misspelt it. The teacher tried to prompt me with the point of his boot, but I would not be prompted. It was beyond me to see that he wanted me to copy the spelling from my neighbor's slate, for I had thought that the teacher was there to supervise us against copying. The result was that all the boys, except myself, were found to have spelt every word correctly. Only I had been stupid. The teacher tried later to bring this stupidity home to me, but without effect. I never could learn the art of copying. Yet the incident did not in the least diminish my respect for my teacher. I was by nature blind to the faults of elders. Later I came to know of many other failings of this teacher, but my regard for him remained the same. For I had learnt to carry out the orders of elders, not to scan their actions. Two other incidents belonging to the same period have always clung to my memory. As a rule, I had a distaste for any reading beyond my school books. The daily lessons had to be done, because I disliked being taken to task by my teacher as much as I disliked deceiving him. Therefore, I would do the lessons, but often without my mind in them. Thus, when even the lessons could not be done properly, there was of course no question of any extra reading. But somehow my eyes fell on a book purchased by my father. It was Shravana Pitri Bhakti Nataka, a play about Shravana's devotion to his parents. I read it with intense interest. There came to our place about the same time itinerant showmen. One of the pictures I was shown was of Shravana carrying, by means of slings fitted for his shoulders, his blind parents on a pilgrimage. The book and the picture left an indelible impression on my mind. Here is an example for you to copy, I said to myself. The agonized lament of the parents over Shravana's death is still fresh in my memory. The melting tune moved me deeply, and I played it on a concertina which my father had purchased for me. There was a similar incident connected with another play, just about this time I had secured my father's permission to see a play performed by a certain dramatic company. This play, Harishchandra, captured my heart. I could never be tired of seeing it, but how often should I be permitted to go? It haunted me, and I must have acted Harishchandra to myself times without number. Why should not all be truthful like Harishchandra? was the question I asked myself day and night. To follow truth and to go through all the ordeals Harishchandra went through was the one ideal it inspired in me. I literally believed in the story of Harishchandra. The thought of it all often made me weep. My common sense tells me today that Harishchandra could not have been a historical character. Still, both Harishchandra and Shravana are living realities for me, and I am sure I should be moved as
0: before if I were to read those plays again today. 3. CHILD MARRIAGE Much as I wish that I had not to write this
1: chapter, I know that I shall have to swallow many such bitter draughts in the course of this narrative, and I cannot do otherwise if I claim to be a worshipper of truth. It is my painful duty to have to record here my marriage at the age of thirteen. As I see the youngsters of the same age about me who are under my care and think of my own marriage, I am inclined to pity myself and to congratulate them on having escaped my lot. I can see no moral argument in support of such a preposterously early marriage. Let the reader make no mistake. I was married, not betrothed. For in Katiawad there are two distinct rites, betrothal and marriage. Betrothal is a preliminary promise on the part of the parents of the boy and the girl to join them in marriage, and it is not inviolable. The death of the boy entails no widowhood on the girl. It is an agreement purely between the parents, and the children have no concern with it. Often they are not even informed of it. It appears that I was betrothed thrice, though without my knowledge I was told that two girls chosen for me had died in turn, and therefore I inferred that I was betrothed three times. I have a faint recollection, however, that the third betrothal took place in my seventh year, but I do not recollect having been informed about it. In the present chapter I am talking about my marriage, of which I have the clearest recollection. It will be remembered that we were three brothers. The first was already married. The elders decided to marry my second brother, who was two or three years my senior, a cousin, possibly a year older, and me all at the same time. In doing so, there was no thought of our welfare, much less our wishes. It was purely a question of their own convenience and economy. Marriage among Hindus is no simple matter. The parents of the bride and the bridegroom often bring themselves to ruin over it. They waste their substance, they waste their time, months are taken up over the preparations, in making clothes and ornaments, and in preparing budgets for dinners. Each tries to outdo the other in the number and variety of courses to be prepared. Women, whether they have a voice or no, sing themselves hoarse, even get ill, and disturb the peace of their neighbors. These, in their turn, quietly put up with all the turmoil and bustle, all the dirt and filth, representing the remains of the feasts because they know that a time will come when they also will be behaving in the same manner it would be better thought my elders to have all this bother over at one and the same time less expense and greater eclat for money could be freely spent if it had only to be spent once instead of thrice my father and my uncle were both old and we were the last children they had to marry it is likely that they wanted to have the last best time of their lives in view of all these considerations a triple wedding was decided upon and as i have said before months were taken up in preparation for it it was only through these preparations that we got warning of the coming event i do not think it meant to me anything more than the prospect of good clothes to wear drum-beating marriage processions rich dinners and a strange girl to play with. The carnal desire came later. I propose to draw the curtain over my shame, except for a few details worth recording. To these I shall come later, but even they have little to do with the central idea I have kept before me in writing this story. So my brother and I were both taken to poor Bunder from Rajcote. There are some amusing details of the preliminaries to the final drama, e.g., smearing our bodies all over with turmeric paste, but I must omit them. My father was a diwan, but nevertheless a servant, and all the more so because he was in favor with the takor sahib. The latter would not let him go until the last moment, and when he did so, he ordered for my father special stagecoaches, reducing the journey by two days, but the fates had willed otherwise, Forbunder is one hundred twenty miles from Rajkot a cart journey of five days. My father did the distance in three, but the coach toppled over in the third stage, and he sustained severe injuries. He arrived bandaged all over. Both his and our interest in the coming event was half destroyed. But the ceremony had to be gone through, for how could the marriage dates be changed? However. I forgot my grief over my father's injuries in the childish amusement of the wedding. I was devoted to my parents, but no less was I devoted to the passions that flesh is heir to. I had yet to learn that all happiness and pleasure should be sacrificed in devoted service to my parents, and yet as though by way of punishment for my desire for pleasures an incident happened which has ever since rankled in my mind, and which I will relate later. Nishkulanand sings, Renunciation of objects without the renunciation of desires is short-lived, however hard you may try. Whenever I sing this song or hear it sung, this bitter untoward incident rushes to my memory and fills me with shame. My father put on a brave face in spite of his injuries and took full part in the wedding. As I think of it, I can even to-day call before my mind's eye the places where he sat as he went through the different details of the ceremony. Little did I dream then that one day I should severely criticize my father for having married me as a child. Everything on that day seemed to me right and proper and pleasing. There was also my own eagerness to get married, and as everything that my father did then struck me as beyond reproach, the recollection of those things is fresh in my memory. I can picture to myself, even today, how we sat on our wedding dais, how we performed the Suptapadi, Suptapadi are seven steps a Hindu bride and bridegroom walk together, making at the same time promises of mutual fidelity and devotion after which the marriage becomes irrevocable how we the newly wedded husband and wife put the sweet consar into each other's mouth consar is a preparation of wheat which the pair partake of together after the completion of the ceremony and how we began to live together and oh that first night Two innocent children all unwittingly hurled themselves into the ocean of life. My brother's wife had thoroughly coached me about my behavior on the first night. I do not know who had coached my wife. I have never asked her about it, nor am I inclined to do so now. The reader may be sure that we were too nervous to face each other. We were certainly too shy. How was I to talk to her, and what was I to say?' The coaching could not carry me far. But no coaching is really necessary in such matters. The impressions of the former birth are potent enough to make all coaching superfluous. We gradually began to know each other and to speak freely
0: together. We were the same age. But I took no time in assuming the authority of a husband. 4. PLAYING THE HUSBAND About the
1: time of my marriage, little pamphlets costing a pice, or a pie, I now forget how much, used to be issued in which conjugal love, thrift, child marriages, and other such subjects were discussed. Whenever I came across any of these, I used to go through them cover to cover, and it was a habit with me to forget what I did not like, and to carry out in practice whatever I liked. Life-long faithfulness to the wife— inculcated in these booklets as the duty of the husband, remained permanently imprinted on my heart. Furthermore, the passion for truth was innate in me, and to be false to her was therefore out of the question, and then there was very little chance of my being faithless at that tender age. But the lesson of faithfulness had also an untoward effect. If I should be pledged to be faithful to my wife, She also should be pledged to be faithful to me, I said to myself. The thought made me a jealous husband. Her duty was easily converted into my right to exact faithfulness from her, and if it had to be exacted, I should be watchfully tenacious of the right. I had absolutely no reason to suspect my wife's fidelity, but jealousy does not wait for reasons. I must needs be forever on the lookout regarding her movements, and therefore she could not go anywhere without my permission. This sowed the seeds of a bitter quarrel between us. The restraint was virtually a sort of imprisonment, and Kasturbai was not the girl to brook any such thing she made it a point to go out whenever and wherever she liked. More restraint on my part resulted in more liberty being taken by her, and in my getting more and more cross. Refusal to speak to one another thus became the order of the day with us, married children. I think it was quite innocent of Kasturbai to have taken those liberties with my restrictions. How could a guileless girl brook any restraint on going to the temple? or on going on visits to friends. If I had the right to impose restrictions on her, had not she also a similar right? All this is clear to me today, but at that time I had to make good my authority as a husband. Let not the reader think, however, that ours was a life of unrelieved bitterness, for my severities were all based on love. I wanted to make my wife an ideal wife. My ambition was to make her live a pure life, learn what I learnt, and identify her life and thought with mine. I do not know whether Casturbai had any such ambition. She was illiterate. By nature, she was simple, independent, persevering, and, with me at least, reticent. She was not impatient of her ignorance, and I do not recollect my studies having ever spurred her to go in for a similar adventure.
0: I fancy, therefore, that my ambition was all one-sided. 8. STEALING AND ATONEMENT I have still to
1: relate some of my failings during this meat-eating period and also previous to it, which date from before my marriage or soon after. A relative and I became fond of smoking. Not that we saw any good in smoking or were enamored of the smell of a cigarette. We simply imagined a sort of pleasure in emitting clouds of smoke from our mouths. My uncle had the habit, and when we saw him smoking we thought we should copy his example, but we had no money. So we began pilfering stumps of cigarettes thrown away by my uncle. The stumps, however, were not always available and could not emit much smoke either. So we began to steal coppers from the servants' pocket money in order to purchase Indian cigarettes. But the question was where to keep them. We could not, of course, smoke in the presence of elders. We managed somehow for a few weeks on these stolen coppers. In the meantime we heard that the stalks of a certain plant were porous and could be smoked like cigarettes. We got them and began this kind of smoking. But we were far from being satisfied with such things as these. Our want of independence began to smart. It was unbearable that we should be unable to do anything without the elder's permission. At last, in sheer disgust, we decided to commit suicide. But how were we to do it? From where were we to get the poison? We heard that Datura seeds were an effective poison. Off we went to the jungle in search of these seeds, and got them. Evening was thought to be the auspicious hour. We went to Kadarji Mandir, put ghee in the temple lamp, had the darshan, and then looked for a lonely corner but our courage failed us. Supposing we were not instantly killed, and what was the good of killing ourselves? Why not rather put up with the lack of independence? But we swallowed two or three seeds nevertheless. We dared not take more. Both of us fought shy of death and decided to go to Mundir to compose ourselves and to dismiss the thought of suicide. I realized that it was not as easy to commit suicide as to contemplate it, and since then, whenever I have heard of someone threatening to commit suicide, it has had little or no effect on me. The thought of suicide ultimately resulted in both of us bidding good-bye to the habit of smoking stumps of cigarettes and of stealing the servants' coppers for the purpose of smoking. Ever since I have been grown up, I have never desired to smoke, and have always regarded the habit of smoking as barbarous, dirty, and harmful. I have never understood why there is such a rage for smoking throughout the world. I cannot bear to travel in a compartment full of people smoking. I become choked. But much more serious than this theft was the one I was guilty of a little later. I pilfered the coppers when I was twelve or thirteen, possibly less. The other theft was committed when I was fifteen. In this case, I stole a bit of gold out of my meat-eating brother's armlet. This brother had run into a debt of about twenty-five rupees. He had on his arm an armlet of solid gold. It was not difficult to clip a bit out of it. Well, it was done, and the debt cleared, but this became more than I could bear. I resolved never to steal again." I also made up my mind to confess it to my father, but I did not dare to speak. Not that I was afraid of my father beating me. No, I do not recall his ever having beaten any of us. I was afraid of the pain that I should cause him, but I felt that the risk should be taken, that there could not be a cleansing without a clean confession. I decided at last to write out the confession, to submit it to my father and ask his forgiveness. I wrote it on a slip of paper and handed it to him myself. In this note not only did I confess my guilt, but I asked adequate punishment for it, and closed with a request to him not to punish himself for my offense. I also pledged myself never to steal in future. I was trembling as I handed the confession to my father. He was then suffering from a fistula and was confined to bed. His bed was a plain wooden plank. I handed him the note and sat opposite the plank. He read it through, and pearl drops trickled down his cheeks, wetting the paper. For a moment he closed his eyes in thought, and then tore up the note. He had sat up to read it. He again lay down. I also cried. I could see my father's agony. If I were a painter, I could draw a picture of the whole scene today. It is still so vivid in my mind. Those pearl drops of love cleansed my heart and washed my sin away. Only he who has experienced such love can know what it is. As the hymn says, Only he who is smitten with the arrows of love knows its power. This was, for me, an object lesson in Ahimsa. Then I could read in it nothing more than a father's love, but today I know that it was pure Ahimsa. When such Ahimsa becomes all-embracing, it transforms everything it touches. There is no limit to its power. This sort of sublime forgiveness was not natural to my father. I had thought that he would be angry say hard things, and strike his forehead. But he was so wonderfully peaceful, and I believe this was due to my clean confession. A clean confession, combined with a promise never to commit the sin again, when offered before one who has the right to receive it, is the purest type of repentance. I know that my confession made my father feel absolutely safe about me, and
0: increased his affection for me beyond measure. 9. MY FATHER'S DEATH AND MY DOUBLE SHAME The time of which I am now
1: speaking is my sixteenth year. My father, as we have seen, was bedridden, suffering from a fistula. My mother, an old servant of the house, and I were his principal attendants. I had the duties of a nurse, which mainly consisted in dressing the wound, giving my father his medicine, and compounding drugs whenever they had to be made up at home. Every night I massaged his legs and retired only when he asked me to do so, or after he had fallen asleep. I loved to do this service. I do not remember ever having neglected it. All the time at my disposal after the performance of the daily duties was divided between school and attending on my father i would only go out for an evening walk either when he permitted me or when he was feeling well this was also the time when my wife was expecting a baby a circumstance which as i can see today meant a double shame for me for one thing i did not restrain myself as i should have done whilst i was yet a student And secondly, this carnal lust got the better of what I regarded as my duty to study, and of what was even a greater duty, my devotion to my parents, Shravana having been my ideal since childhood. Every night whilst my hands were busy massaging my father's legs, my mind was hovering about the bedroom, and that too at a time when religion, medical science, and common sense alike forbade sexual intercourse. I was always glad to be relieved from my duty and went straight to the bedroom after doing obeisance to my father. At the same time, my father was getting worse every day. Ayurvedic physicians had tried all their ointments, Hakim's their plasters and local quacks their nostrums. An English surgeon had also used his skill as the last and only resort he had recommended a surgical operation. But the family physician came in the way. He disapproved of an operation being performed at such an advanced age. The physician was competent and well-known, and his advice prevailed. The operation was abandoned, and various medicines purchased for the purpose were of no account. I have an impression that, if the physician had allowed the operation, the wound would have been easily healed. The operation also was to have been performed by a surgeon who was then well known in Bombay, but God had willed otherwise. When death is imminent, who can think of the right remedy? My father returned from Bombay with all the paraphernalia of the operation, which were now useless. He despaired of living any longer. He was getting weaker and weaker, until at last he had to be asked to perform the necessary functions in bed. But up to the last he refused to do anything of the kind, always insisting on going through the strain of leaving his bed. The Vaishnavite rules about external cleanliness are so inexorable. Such cleanliness is quite essential, no doubt, but Western medical science has taught us that all the functions, including a bath, can be done in bed with the strictest regard to cleanliness and without the slightest discomfort to the patient the bed always remaining spotlessly clean. I should regard such cleanliness as quite consistent with Vaishnavism. But my father's insistence on leaving the bed only struck me with wonder then, and I had nothing but admiration for it. The dreadful night came. My uncle was then in Rajcote. I have a faint recollection that he came to Rajkot, having had news that my father was getting worse. The brothers were deeply attached to each other. My uncle would sit near my father's bed the whole day and would insist on sleeping by his bedside after sending us all to sleep. No one had dreamt that this was to be the fateful night. The danger, of course, was there. It was ten thirty or eleven p.m. I was giving the massage. My uncle offered to relieve me. I was glad and went straight to the bedroom. My wife, poor thing, was fast asleep. But how could she sleep when I was there? I woke her up. In five or six minutes, however, the servant knocked at the door. I started with alarm. Get up, he said. Father is very ill. I knew, of course, that he was very ill, and so I guessed what very ill meant at that moment. I sprang out of bed. What is the matter? Do tell me. Father is no more so all was over. I had but to wring my hands. I felt deeply ashamed and miserable. I ran to my father's room. I saw that if animal passion had not blinded me, I should have been spared the torture of separation from my father during his last moments. I should have been massaging him, and he would have died in my arms. But now it was my uncle who had had this privilege. He was so deeply devoted to his elder brother that he had earned the honor of doing him the last services. My father had forebodings of the coming event. He had made a sign for pen and paper and written, Prepare for the last rites. He had then snapped the amulet off his arm and also his gold necklace of Tulasi beads and flung them aside. A moment after this, he was no more. The shame to which i have referred in a foregoing chapter was this shame of my carnal desire even at the critical hour of my father's death which demanded wakeful service it is a blot i have never been able to efface or forget and i have always thought that although my devotion to my parents knew no bounds and i would have given up anything for it yet it was weighed and found unpardonably wanting because my mind was at the same moment in the grip of lust. I had therefore always regarded myself as a lustful, though a faithful husband. It took me long to get free from the shackles of lust, and I had to pass through many ordeals before I could overcome it. Before I close this chapter of my double shame, I may mention that the poor mite that was born to my wife scarcely breathed for more than three or four days. Nothing else could be
0: expected. Let all those who are married be warned by my example. 10. Glimpses of Religion From my sixth or
1: seventh year up to my sixteenth I was at school, being taught all sorts of things except religion. I may say that I failed to get from the teachers what they could have given me without any effort on their part, and yet I kept on picking up things here and there from my surroundings. The term religion I am using in its broadest sense, meaning thereby self-realization or knowledge of self. Being born in the Vaishnava faith, I had often to go to the Havali, but it never appealed to me. I did not like its glitter and pomp. Also I heard rumors of immorality being practiced there, and lost all interest in it. Hence I could gain nothing from the Havali. But what I failed to get there, I obtained from my nurse, an old servant of the family, whose affection for me I still recall. I have said before that there was in me a fear of ghosts and spirits. Rumba! or that was her name, suggested as a remedy for this fear the repetition of Ramanama. I had more faith in her than in her remedy, and so at a tender age I began repeating Ramanama to cure my fear of ghosts and spirits. This was, of course, short-lived, but the good seed sown in childhood was not sown in vain. I think it is due to the seed sown by that good woman Rumba that today Ramanama is an infallible remedy for me. Just about this time, a cousin of mine, who was a devotee of the Ramayana, arranged for my second brother and me to learn Ram Raksha. We got it by heart and made it a rule to recite it every morning after the bath. The practice was kept up as long as we were in Porbandar. As soon as we reached Rajkot, it was forgotten for I had not much belief in it. I recited it partly because of my pride in being able to recite Ram Raksha with correct pronunciation. What, however, left a deep impression on me was the reading of the Ramayana before my father. During part of his illness, my father was in Porbandar. There, every evening, he used to listen to the Ramayana. The reader was a great devotee of Rama. Lada Maharaj of Bileshvar. It was said of him that he cured himself of his leprosy, not by any medicine, but by applying to the affected parts bilva-leaves, which had been cast away after being offered to the image of Mahadeva in Bileshvar temple, and by the regular repetition of Ramanama. His faith, it was said, had made him whole, This may or may not be true. We, at any rate, believe the story, and it is a fact that when Lada Maharaj began his reading of the Ramayana, his body was entirely free from leprosy. He had a melodious voice. He would sing the Doha's, couplets, and Chopai's, quatrains, and explain them, losing himself in the discourse and carrying his listeners along with him. I must have been thirteen at that time, but I quite remember being enraptured by his reading. That laid the foundation of my deep devotion to the Ramayana. Today I regard the Ramayana of Tulasidas as the greatest book in all devotional literature. A few months after this we came to Rajkot. There was no Ramayana reading there. The Bhagavat, however, used to be read on every Akadashi day. Eleventh day of the bright and the dark half of a lunar month. Sometimes I attended the reading, but the reciter was uninspiring. Today I see that the Bhagavat is a book which can evoke religious fervor. I have read it in Gujarati with intense interest, but when I heard portions of the original read by Pandit Madan Mohan Malaviya during my twenty-one days fast. I wished I had heard it in my childhood from such a devotee as he is, so that I could have formed a liking for it at an early age. Impressions formed at that age strike roots deep down into one's nature, and it is my perpetual regret that I was not fortunate enough to hear more good books of this kind read during that period. In Rajkot, however, I got an early grounding in toleration for all branches of Hinduism and sister religions. For my father and mother would visit the Havali as also Shiva's and Rama's temples, and would take or send us youngsters there. Jain monks also would pay frequent visits to my father, and would even go out of their way to accept food from us, non-jains. They would have talks with my father on subjects religious and mundane. He had, besides— Musulman and Parsi friends, who would talk to him about their own faiths, and he would listen to them always with respect, and often with interest. Being his nurse, I often had a chance to be present at these talks. These many things combined to inculcate in me a toleration for all faiths. Only Christianity was at the time an exception. I developed a sort of dislike for it, and for a reason. In those days, Christian missionaries used to stand in a corner near the high school and hold forth, pouring abuse on Hindus and their gods. I could not endure this. I must have stood there to hear them once only, but that was enough to dissuade me from repeating the experiment. About the same time I heard of a well-known Hindu having been converted to Christianity. It was the talk of the town that, when he was baptized, he had to eat beef and drink liquor, that he also had to change his clothes, and that thenceforth he began to go about in European costume, including a hat. These things got on my nerves, surely, thought I. A religion that compelled one to eat beef— drink liquor, and change one's own clothes did not deserve the name. I also heard that the new convert had already begun abusing the religion of his ancestors, their customs, and their country. All these things created in me a dislike for Christianity. But the fact that I had learned to be tolerant to other religions did not mean that I had any living faith in God. I happened about this time. To come across Manusmriti, which was amongst my father's collection. Laws of Manu, a Hindu lawgiver. They have the sanction of religion. The story of the creation and similar things in it did not impress me very much, but on the contrary made me incline somewhat towards atheism. There was a cousin of mine, still alive, for whose intellect I had great regard. To him I turned with my doubts but he could not resolve them. He sent me away with this answer. When you grow up, you will be able to solve these doubts yourself. These questions ought not to be raised at your age. I was silenced, but was not comforted. Chapters about diet and the like in Manus Mriti seemed to me to run contrary to daily practice. To my doubts as to this also I got the same answer. With intellect more developed and with more reading I shall understand it better, I said to myself. Manusmriti, at any rate, did not then teach me ahimsa. I have told the story of my meat-eating. Manusmriti seemed to support it. I also felt that it was quite moral to kill serpents, bugs and the like. I remember to have killed at that age bugs and such other insects, regarding it as a duty. But one thing took deep root in me, the conviction that morality is the basis of things, and that truth is the substance of all morality. Truth became my sole objective. It began to grow in magnitude every day, and my definition of it also has been ever-widening. A Gujarati didactic stanza likewise gripped my mind and heart. Its precept— return good for evil, became my guiding principle. It became such a passion with me that I began numerous experiments in it. Here are those, for me, wonderful lines. For a bowl of water, give a goodly meal. For a kindly greeting, bow thou down with zeal. For a simple penny, pay thou back with gold. If thy life be rescued, life do not withhold. Thus the words and actions of the wise regard, Every little service tenfold they reward, But the truly noble know all men as one,
0: And return with gladness good for evil done. 11. PREPARATION FOR ENGLAND I passed the matriculation examination
1: in 1887. It then used to be held at two centers, Ahmedabad and Bombay. The general poverty of the country naturally led Katiawad students to prefer the nearer and the cheaper center. The poverty of my family likewise dictated to me the same choice. This was my first journey from Rajkot to Ahmedabad, and that, too, without a companion. My elders wanted me to pursue my studies at college after the matriculation. There was a college in Baunuggar, as well as in Bombay, and as the former was cheaper, I decided to go there and join the Samaldas College. I went, but found myself entirely at sea. Everything was difficult. I could not follow, let alone taking interest in, the professors' lectures. It was no fault of theirs. The professors in that college were regarded as first-rate, but I was so raw. At the end of the first term I returned home. We had in Mavji Dave, who was a shrewd and learned Brahmin, an old friend and advisor of the family. He had kept up his connection with the family, even after my father's death. He happened to visit us during my vacation. In conversation with my mother and elder brother, he inquired about my studies. Learning that I was at Samaldas College, he said, The times are changed, and none of you can expect to succeed to your father's gadi without having had a proper education. Now, as this boy is still pursuing his studies, you should all look to him to keep the Gaudi. It will take him four or five years to get his B.A. degree, which will, at best, QUALIFY HIM FOR A SIXTY RUPEES POST, NOT FOR A diwanship. IF, LIKE MY SON, HE WENT IN FOR LAW, IT WOULD TAKE HIM STILL LONGER, BY WHICH TIME THERE WOULD BE A HOST OF LAWYERS ASPIRING FOR A diwan's POST. I WOULD FAR RATHER THAT YOU SEND HIM TO ENGLAND. MY SON, KEVILRUM, SAYS IT IS VERY EASY TO BECOME A BARRISTER. IN THREE YEARS' TIME HE WILL RETURN. Also, expenses will not exceed four to five thousand rupees. Think of that barrister who has just come back from England. How stylishly he lives! He could get the Diwanship for the asking. I would strongly advise you to send Mohandas to England this very year. Kevilram has numerous friends in England. He will give notes of introduction to them, and Mohandas will have an easy time of it there. Joshi-ji, that is how we used to call old Mavji-dave, turned to me with complete assurance and asked, Would you not rather go to England than study here? Nothing could have been more welcome to me. I was fighting shy of my difficult studies. So I jumped at the proposal and said that the sooner I was sent, the better. It was no easy business to pass examinations quickly. Could I not be sent to qualify for the medical profession? My brother interrupted me. Father never liked it. He had you in mind when he said that we Vaishnavas should have nothing to do with dissection of dead bodies. Father intended you for the bar. Joshiji chimed in, I am not opposed to the medical profession, as was Gandhiji. Our Shastras are not against it, but a medical degree will not make a diwan of you, and I want you to be diwan or, if possible, something better. Only in that way could you take under your protecting care your large family. The times are fast changing and getting harder every day. It is the wisest thing, therefore, to become a barrister. Turning to my mother, he said, Now I must leave. Pray, ponder over what I have said. When I come here next I shall expect to hear of preparations for England. Be sure to let me know if I can assist in any way. Joshiji went away, and I began building castles in the air. My elder brother was greatly exercised in his mind. How was he to find the wherewithal to send me? And was it proper to trust a young man like me to go abroad alone? My mother was sorely perplexed. She did not like the idea of parting with me. This is how she tried to put me off. Uncle, she said, is now the eldest member of the family. He should first be consulted. If he consents, we will consider the matter. My brother had another idea. He said to me, We have a certain claim on the Porbunder state. Mr. Lely is the administrator. He thinks highly of our family, and uncle is in his good books. It is just possible that he might recommend you for some state help for your education in England. I liked all this, and got ready to start off for Porbunder. There was no railway in those days. It was a five days' bullock-cart journey. I have already said that I was a coward, but at that moment my cowardice vanished before the desire to go to England, which completely possessed me. I hired a bullock-cart as far as Doraji, and from Doraji I took a camel in order to get to Porbunder a day quicker. This was my first camel ride. I arrived at last, did obeisance to my uncle, and told him everything. He thought it over and said, I am not sure whether it is possible for one to stay in England without prejudice to one's own religion. From all I have heard, I have my doubts. When I meet these big barristers, I see no difference between their life and that of Europeans. They know no scruples regarding food. Cigars are never out of their mouths. They dress as shamelessly as Englishmen. All that would not be in keeping with our family tradition. I am shortly going on a pilgrimage, and have not many years to live. At the threshold of death, how dare I give you permission to go to England, to cross the seas? But I will not stand in your way. It is your mother's permission which really matters. If she permits you, then Godspeed! Tell her I will not interfere you will go with my blessings i could expect nothing more from you said i i shall now try to win mother over but would you not recommend me to mr leely how can i do that said he but he is a good man you ask for an appointment telling him how you are connected he will certainly give you one and may even help you i cannot say why my uncle did not give me a note of recommendation i have a faint idea that he hesitated to cooperate directly in my going to England, which was, in his opinion, an irreligious act. I wrote to Mr. Lely, who asked me to see him at his residence. He saw me as he was ascending the staircase and, saying curtly, "'Pass your B.A. first, and then see me. No help can be given you now,' he hurried upstairs. I had made elaborate preparations to meet him, I had carefully learnt up a few sentences, and had bowed low, and saluted him with both hands, but all to no purpose. I thought of my wife's ornaments. I thought of my elder brother, in whom I had the utmost faith. He was generous to a fault, and he loved me as his son. I returned to Rajcote from Porbunder and reported all that had happened. I consulted Joshiji, who, of course, advised even incurring a debt if necessary. I suggested the disposal of my wife's ornaments, which could fetch about two to three thousand rupees. My brother promised to find the money somehow. My mother, however, was still unwilling. She had begun making minute inquiries. Someone had told her that young men got lost in England. Someone else had said that they took to meet and yet another that they could not live there without liquor. How about all this? she asked me. I said, Will you not trust me? I shall not lie to you. I swear that I shall not touch any of those things. If there were any such danger, would Joshiji let me go? I can trust you, she said, but how can I trust you in a distant land? I am dazed and know not what to do. I will ask Bhatragi Swami. Bhatragi Swami was originally a Mode Bunya, but had now become a Jain monk. He too was a family adviser like Joshiji. He came to my help and said, "I shall get the boy solemnly to take the three vows, and then he can be allowed to go." He administered the oath, and I vowed not to touch wine, women, and meat this done my mother gave her permission the high school had a send-off in my honour it was an uncommon thing for a young man of rajkot to go to england i had written out a few words of thanks but i could scarcely stammer them out i remember how my head reeled and how my whole frame shook as i stood up to read them with the blessings of my elders i started for bombay this was my first journey from rajkot to bombay My brother accompanied me, but there is many a slip twixt the cup and the lip.
0: There were difficulties to be faced in Bombay. 12. OUTCAST With my mother's permission and blessings, I set off
1: exultantly for Bombay, leaving my wife with a baby of a few months. But on arrival there, friends told my brother that the Indian Ocean was rough in June and July, and as this was my first voyage, I should not be allowed to sail until November. Someone also reported that a steamer had just been sunk in a gale. This made my brother uneasy, and he refused to take the risk of allowing me to sail immediately. Leaving me with a friend in Bombay, he returned to Rajcote to resume his duty. He put the money for my traveling expenses in the keeping of a brother-in-law, and left word with some friends to give me whatever help I might need. Time hung heavily on my hands in Bombay. I dreamt continually of going to England. Meanwhile, my caste people were agitated over my going abroad. No Modbunya had been to England up to now, and if I dared to do so, I ought to be brought to book." A general meeting of the caste was called, and I was summoned to appear before it. I went. How I suddenly managed to muster up courage, I do not know. Nothing daunted, and without the slightest hesitation, I came before the meeting. The Shait, the headman of the community, who was distantly related to me and had been on very good terms with my father, thus accosted me. In the opinion of the caste, your proposal to go to England is not proper. Our religion forbids voyages abroad. We have also heard that it is not possible to live there without compromising our religion. One is obliged to eat and drink with Europeans. To which I replied, I do not think it is at all against our religion to go to England. I intend going there for further studies." and I have already solemnly promised to my mother to abstain from three things you fear most. I am sure the vow will keep me safe. But we tell you, rejoined the Shait, that it is not possible to keep our religion there. You know my relations with your father, and you ought to listen to my advice. I know those relations, said I, and you are as an elder to me, but I am helpless in this matter. I cannot alter my resolve to go to England. My father's friend and adviser, who is a learned Brahmin, sees no objection to my going to England, and my mother and brother have also given me their permission. But will you disregard the orders of the caste? I am really helpless. I think the caste should not interfere in the matter. This incensed the sheik. He swore at me. I sat unmoved. So, the sheyte pronounced his order. This boy shall be treated as an outcast from today. Whoever helps him or goes to see him off at the dock shall be punishable with a fine of one rupee four annas. The order had no effect on me, and I took my leave of the sheyte, but I wondered how my brother would take it. Fortunately, he remained firm and wrote to assure me that I had his permission to go the Shayt's order notwithstanding. The incident, however, made me more anxious than ever to sail. What would happen if they succeeded in bringing pressure to bear on my brother? Supposing something unforeseen happened. As I was thus worrying over my predicament, I heard that a Janagad Vakil was going to England, or being called to the bar, by a boat sailing on the 4th of September. I met the friends to whose care my brother had commended me. They also agreed that I should not let go the opportunity of going in such company. There was no time to be lost. I wired to my brother for permission, which he granted. I asked my brother-in-law to give me the money. But he referred to the Order of the Shait, and said that he could not afford to lose caste. I then sought a friend of the family and requested him to accommodate me to the extent of my passage and sundries, and to recover the loan from my brother. The friend was not only good enough to accede to my request, but he cheered me up as well. I was so thankful. With part of the money, I at once purchased the passage. Then I had to equip myself for the voyage. There was another friend who had experience in the matter, He got clothes and other things ready, some of the
0: clothes I liked and some I did not like at all, the necktie, which I delight.